A Korean court's public announcement on the order to seize assets of Nippon Steel Corporation after the Japanese firm refused to compensate four Korean victims of wartime forced labor in line with a local Supreme Court ruling went into effect as of midnight yesterday. And the company says it will file an immediate complaint on the move, according to Japanese media reports. This is expected to worsen the already tense Seoul-Tokyo relationship over a host of issues, including trade and most recently Tokyo's failure to honor uh, Korean forced labor victims on its Meiji Industrial Revolution sites registered on UNESCO's World Heritage List. So to give us some further analysis on the situation. We're pleased to be joined uh, from uh, the Director of Studies at Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy at the Australian National University, Dr. Lauren Richardson, on the line, who took part in a uh, recent international forum on this very topic. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me on your program. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Richardson. Uh, In terms of Japan not adhering to uh, this promise to uh, really uh, be as uh, truthful on the historical record behind Japan's forced mobilization of foreign workers on Battleship Island during the uh, colonial era. Uh, What would you say are some of the major problems related to the way Japan describes or uh, papers over the uh, wartime forced labor issue? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's definitely going to deepen the dispute um, between Japan and South Korea in relation to this issue. And I think we can kind of see from when Japan, you know, made that promise in around 2015 to UNESCO, it was quite clear at the time that there was some ambivalence because on the one hand, you had the Japanese ambassador to the UN saying Koreans were brought to Japan against their will and, you know, implying, of course, that means force. But at the same time, you had the Japanese foreign minister saying in Japanese, you know, to people back home, um, we don't regard them as forced laborers, uh, you know, and he, he used the, the term hataraka sarita, which means people kind of made to work, which is very different. So I think that what Japan is trying to do at the time was just to say what we need to say in order to get these sites listed, um, but didn't really have the intention of you know, incorporating, um, you know, the history in any meaningful way of forced labor. So I guess the the kind of context of this is obviously these court cases going on in South Korea are connected to this UNESCO issue and because they both concern um, Korean forced laborers. And I think um, because Japan doesn't want to, you know, have to take any further legal responsibility for those laborers, it matters to Japan what they call those laborers, because if they use the term, you know, forced labor, then it implies, you know, there's, it is a, a sort of violation of human rights and we need to take maybe further responsibility or we may be liable. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very complicated, I think. Yeah, and there's been similar strategies uh, undertaken uh, with the uh, issue of sexual slavery and the euphemism terming them comfort women and Japan's arguments uh, along the lines of uh, whether this was coercion or not, which, of course, uh, is uh, outrageous uh, to the wider uh, Korean public. But if you consider the uh, wartime forced labor issue and also noting that uh, South Koreans and Koreans as a whole weren't the only victims to uh, Japanese uh, wartime uh, 
atrocities or during the wider uh, Japanese imperial uh, period. In in terms of the cooperation between uh, Northeast Asian nations and uh, nations like Australia as well, how how important do you think is uh, the idea that there needs to be some cooperation or cohesiveness uh, among the various interested parties involved to uh, at least try to bring truth to this matter uh, with or without Japanese cooperation? Yeah, it's a good question. I think you're right um, in the sense that in Japan, um, and when I say Japan, I'm definitely not speaking about the whole country. I think there is a conservative establishment um, that's really, you know, taken root and it's made up of obviously the ruling party, but many media outlets and even many academics are in that boat and they've really taken a very narrow um, definition of the concept of force. And I also noticed the discourse on force within this establishment. Um, it kind of just focuses on mobilization. You know, mm. how did the victims get to the place they're working? And that includes comfort women or sex slaves as well as, you know, laborers. Um, and they tend to, you know, just, yeah, as I said, adopt a very narrow definition of force, which mostly focuses on abduction or sort of kidnapping, you know, that we pulled them out of the house, put them on a, a boat and sent them to the side. And, okay, that that was not the most common way. But um, I think the way the international community would see this, and myself personally as an academic, is that coercion and force should be interpreted a lot more broadly. Um that mobilization, that's the least of the problems, right? Of course, it's not very pleasant to be put on a boat and taken somewhere and you don't know where you're going and you're a bit nervous. But that's not where the victimization happened, usually. I mean, some cases it was terrifying, you know, but the victimization happened at the sites when Mm. they were not allowed to leave. And that includes both comfort women and laborers, you know. People were arrested if they tried to, to relieve those sites and they didn't have any control over how much work they did. Um, So there was a lot of, you know, layers of force. And I think in terms of the international community, yeah, there's many countries that have a stake in this. Um, When Taro Aso was Prime Minister of Japan, he had to admit, because some documents were revealed, that it was not just, you know, laborers from occupied territories, but also British, Australian and Dutch POWs were Mm. used to labor in his family's mine. So I think it would be good to engage with them and if they're still alive or if their families um, are willing to speak about what was the situation um, of their labor experience and ask them about the Korean laborers who are at those sites. But, yeah, I do think it's important. Um, I don't think there is going to be any meaningful cooperation between Japan and South Korea until we can at least acknowledge that suffering you know, if if there's a pushback against acknowledgement, then there's no room to sort of negotiate anything. And as you pointed out, uh, the issue with the UNESCO World Heritage List and this uh, current court battle that's been going on uh, between uh, Seoul and Tokyo. Well, basically, an independent judiciary in South Korea, the Supreme Court, ruling that uh, uh, Japanese firms need to compensate the victims of, of forced wartime labor. Uh, the deadline has now uh, come upon us where uh, we are starting to see the liquidation process of some of the assets here in Korea of uh, Nippon Steel after they basically have flouted the the court order. Um, both countries, South Korea and Japan, are allies of the United States, and, and they look to um, the U.S. for support and maybe hope that uh, the U.S. will take one side 
or the other, uh, trying to curry favor in various ways, although uh, Donald Trump has uh, proven to be perhaps a little bit uh, uh, less conventional in how he approaches these things. I understand that you've argued in the past that the two countries, this kind of diplomatic dispute does not need mediation by Washington. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So um, I base this argument on the presumption that the main issue that's causing problems in Japan-South Korea relations right now, and for the past, you know, 12 months, even before that, is the forced labor issue. You know, there's, of course, been many other problems, the trade dispute, but all of them have have been side effects of this primary issue. Um, certainly, of course, the comfort women issue is always there, but that's not really what's causing all the tension at the moment. And so obviously, you know, when this dispute emerged and Japan and South Korea were having problems, what I noticed is a lot of academics around the world and analysts um, who tended to be specialists of alliance politics mm. all just resorted to this default argument that the U.S. should step in and help as though the U.S. is some kind of saviour, you know, mm. um, that's capable of solving any kind of complex dispute. But as someone who researched this issue of forced labour for my PhD, um, among other issues concerning Korean victims, I knew that the history of the U.S. in this problem was incredibly problematic. So firstly, the U.S. used Korean labor um, during its allied occupation of Japan. It may have been only for a few months, but that's still Mm. very significant when you consider they'd been through years of suffering and were very desperate to get home. Um, So that's partly a problem, right? You don't want a mediator who is an actual perpetrator in the issue they're trying to solve because, of course, then they're going to take Japan's position, which is... Nothing bad happened here. Um, And then the second issue was the United States decided to take responsibility for the matter of unpaid wages and then ordered all the companies to put the money in accounts in Tokyo, but then didn't give them to the laborers because they said, oh, we don't have enough, you know, capability. And then even when the South Korean government said, well, we'll take care of the payment and you give it to us, the U.S. said no. And then not only that, years later, um, in 2010, um, many of the laborers um, went, sorry, I should say 2001, they they went to the United States to sue um, Japanese companies under state law that allows basically slave labor cases, regardless of the citizenship of the plaintiffs. And the U.S. federal government intervened and threw those cases out. So in doing so, the U.S. has made its position very clear, you know, that it wants to protect its alliance with Japan. Yeah. And its interests are not in helping those victims. And when you consider that all the diplomatic tension between Japan and South Korea, it's coming from the victims. And I don't mean to say that to blame them. I mean, they're, they're searching for justice. But it's that's where the source is, right? And if right. the U.S. has made its position clear, we don't support them, they're just going to try and, you know, put a a Band-Aid over this dispute, and it's not going to solve anything. Definitely uh, a bit of a wake-up call for our Korean listeners uh, hearing your analysis of this. Dr. Richardson, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, your insights. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Okay, bye. This morning with Henry Shin on TBS EFM. 
Let's continue this discussion with a prominent Korea-Japan expert from the Department of History at University of Connecticut, Professor Alexis Dudden on the line. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you Thank uh, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And if I, could just, if I could just say the best part of radio is I just got to listen to Professor Richardson on a different continent, from a different continent, and she was fabulous, and I learned so much. So thank you for putting me on after her so I could learn from her, too. Well, we thank you for joining us, and we uh, look forward to learning from you as well, uh, Professor. And I urge all our listeners to uh, read your work, uh, including uh, your uh, piece in the New York Times that was published late last year, where you highlight uh, kind of following up on what Dr. Richards is saying about um, this uh, idea of uh, mediation being possible to the extent that is, and whether the U.S. can play an honest broker role. And you really kind of uh, very eloquently lay out the history of how um, prominent figures back in the day of the 1965 treaty uh, negotiations, uh, uh, people like William Sebald, uh, that uh, there was an inherent flaw in the way that uh, drafting of the treaty uh, took place, which does lead to right now, currently, where we see a stalemate, uh, the Japanese say, side saying 1965 that uh, treaty addresses all of these questions uh, the uh, questions are all final and answered whereas uh, Korea still feels that uh, there are some lingering issues that uh, remain so uh, that being said then uh, w- what is the U.S.'s role in all of this right now? Uh the million-dollar question, and I would agree with uh, Professor Richardson's assertion that, you know, an involved party cannot be the mediator mm. uh, in a sort of, you know, brokering any deal. Uh, and I think uh, what is clear from the record, from the historical record, is that uh, Japan was the favored of the two alliance uh, areas, and it, you know, arguably continues to be uh, for expedient reasons. I don't, you know, I I don't go beyond a sort of strategic structural analysis Mm. in this, in the sense that I don't want to play who is favorite for why, Mm -hmm. Um, because uh, especially in the Seabald records, uh, between 1946 and 1952, he really advocated for Japanese interests only to lose the prize for him, which is Dokdo. And so, I mean, that was something that the, the, the U.S. person in Japan tried so hard to achieve for Japan, and he failed. So why did that, you know, from the beginning... There was a U.S. determination to insert itself in between Japan and Korean, especially Japan and South Korean relations, uh, so that any time a problem arose, it would have to be the sort of guarantor to both, and whichever yeah. suited its needs at any moment, it would be. And I, it, to me, the fatal flaw of the 65 Treaty, if you fast-forward it, because negotiations for how Japan should atone for the colonial occupation of Korea, 1905 to 1945, began as soon as the San Francisco Treaty came into effect in 1952. And Interestingly, during the 13 years until 1965 throughout, Japanese diplomats also negotiated with diplomats from Pyongyang. And so what happened in 65 was a very American determination, definitely backed by South Korean dictator uh, Park Chung-hee at the time, to negate North Korea from the settlement. 
And so, you know, Japanese wanted to also have a normalization treaty with North Korea. But instead, at the very last moment, only South Korea was to be normalized with. Mm. So if you step back and just think about it, it doesn't make any sense from the start. There was no South Korea under Japanese colonial occupation. And so declaring one one of these uh, nations the only Korea was really what the United States managed to do in the treaty. And that's where it inserted itself. So what's the United States' role? Uh, To own up to its history, because it certainly can't mediate. At the same time, it's the security guarantor for both, so it's got a different role. And it's a little honesty would go a long way, but <laughs> right. it's pretty difficult to imagine that that's going to happen in this administration. And so under that realistic scenario where we don't expect uh, the U.S. necessarily to uh, play an honest broker role in this, from South Korea's uh, perspective and just with this specific, the specific situation of wartime forced labor, the uh, Supreme Court decision, which apparently angered uh, Japan enough to uh, engage in these uh, controversial trade restrictions and these uh, tit for tats that have ensued as a result. And now we are getting to sort of the climax of the issue with this potential liquidation of Nippon Steel's assets in South Korea to compensate those uh, wartime uh, labor victims. What it, it, the way it, the scenario is being pointed out it feels like South Korea does not really have uh, any friends in this. Uh, what are the potential options for South Korea going forward? Uh, we know about the WTO option for the trade restrictions, but uh, carrying out the Supreme Court's um, order here, which, again, is an independent uh, entity here in a South Korean d- democracy, has nothing to do with what the Blue House is deciding to do um, it does feel like a rock and a hard place for South Korea right now. Is there any way uh, for them to be able to successfully navigate this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think very much as you've pointed out, this is not, uh, you know, this is not a nationalized, uh, uh, centralized mandate. This is an independent branch of the government in a democratic society, following years of deliberation and ruling. And now you've got the the local Daegu court ordering the liquidation of assets of this small subsidiary. Um, you know, it, it's a very well-crafted uh, argument. Um, what I think Korea and Koreans as a whole have working in their favor aligns with a lot of what Japanese lawyers working on these cases and Japanese activists working on these cases believe. And I mean, let's let's step back also and remember that it is the lifelong work of many Japanese scholars, Japanese uh, lawyers associations, Japanese uh, judges that have unearthed a lot of the documents and worked together with their counterparts in Korea, China, and abroad, uh, you know, American POW labor, et cetera, allied uh, Australian POW labor as well. And so what Koreans... Uh, might rightly do is look to uh, instances such as um, in November 2018, following that initial late October 2018 Supreme Court ruling, a Japanese Lawyers Association um, issued, uh, a Japanese group of attorneys issued a statement on how the Korean Supreme Court ruling actually aligned with international norms. Mm. Uh, They argued that forced labor is, it's not a Japan-Korea issue. It's not a Japan-China issue. Forced labor is a human rights issue. And that these Japanese lawyers made the very thoughtful 
uh, assertion that the that the 1965 treaty did not extinguish the right for an individual to seek compensation and that's backed up by human rights law as well and then finally that that this is exactly the international standard today and so again this is where you know and you know if we if we dovetail this with the issue of forced militarized sexual slavery so-called comfort women issue mm. um you know moving it beyond the korea versus japan parameter into a global issue is really what we're talking about and that's where many Japanese want to take Japan. The problem is we're dealing with the Abe administration, which has an entrenched position and just, you know, goes to its default mechanism that Koreans are quote-unquote dirty liars, and that works very easily as a dog whistle for a certain Japanese political base. So for Koreans to rise above that, take it international, work with Chinese counterparts, work with uh, allied right. POW uh, forced labor issues, et cetera, et cetera. So the more internationalized, the more human rights oriented. At the same time, we're talking about individual Koreans right. who were for, who suffered, and so the the balance lies in recognizing the particularity of these these people who had really difficult lives right. and horrendous experiences that need to be recognized as part of Korea's modernity as well. Well, Professor Tunnan, uh, thank you so much for your insights. I really wish we had more time, but uh, hopefully we can have you back again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye.